Uh, Today we wrap up our series, One Story, One Savior. It's a series we've been looking at through this Advent season, looking at the four acts, if you will, the four scenes that make up the biblical story, creation, the fall, redemption, and today we're going to be looking at restoration. And the the aim for this series has, has been to simply uh, examine how all 66 books of the Bible actually tell one unified story that points us to one glorious Savior. And like I said, it's a story that can be broken down into, into four scenes, into four acts. Last week we looked at Act 3, Redemption. And uh, if you were with us, you'll remember that we, we defined redemption as the issuing of payment for the purpose of regaining something of value that has been lost. And we looked at this is is how, this is precisely what Jesus came to earth to do. As we see in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, Jesus came to pay the debt that we owed to God for our rebellion against him. And Jesus did so by dying on a cross in our place as our substitute. He, he, he died to satisfy the wrath that God justly had toward our sin. He died to regain us, making a payment with his life, regaining us after we had been lost by the fall, which we looked at two weeks ago. This act two of the biblical story The fall, which spans nearly the entire Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the Old Testament to Malachi. And we saw two weeks ago, as we looked at the fall, how death and decay and disorder entered our world through sin. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, betrayed God by disobeying this one command, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had been given every other tree, every other tree in all creation to eat from and to enjoy. But because God did not give them this one tree, because he did not give them every single tree, they doubted his goodness entirely. And they severed their allegiance to him. And we saw in Act 2, the fall, that God handed them over to what they wanted most, autonomy, separation from God. But as we saw last, excuse me, as we saw three weeks ago in Act 1, creation, Act 1 of the biblical story, Adam and Eve were not created for autonomy, and neither were their descendants, you and I, and all of humanity. As we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, you and I and humanity were created to worship and to reflect. Do we just lose power or did the Okay, sounded like we just lost power for it might have been the, the <laughs> totally distracted me. I'm sorry about that. We were created to to worship and reflect and have relationship with the holy triune God, the Father and Son. And spirit. We were created to, to work. We were created to steward and to enjoy all of the wondrous world that God had made. We were created to dwell in peace with him forever and in wholeness and fullness and goodness and glory. Free of the devastations of sin. 
free of cancer? Imagine it. Free of violence and poverty and injustice and greed. Free of suffering. Free of tears. I mean, it's, it's nearly impossible to imagine. But this is life as it should be. This is life as it was meant to be. And this is precisely how the Bible describes life will be when Jesus comes again to finish the work he began at redemption. When he comes again to bring about the final restoration of all things. To restore means to return something to its former unimpaired condition. When I'm able to, to watch this show, I, I love watching American Pickers. Have you seen it? It's amazing. The guys in this one episode, the Pickers, they were rummaging through somebody's barn and they found this old, just in horrible disrepair, this old Coca-Cola fridge, right? And if you've seen the show, you know what they do. They take it to their boy, Rick, at Rick's Restorations, and Rick just meticulously stripped this fridge of all of its parts. He painstakingly, he sanded down all of the rust, got away all, he removed all the blemishes, he, he grafted in new metal, he undertook the, 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 the laborious process of, of repainting the fridge according to its exact factory specs. He replaced all the hardware. I'm going on and on and on. I love the show. Needless to say, the final product, the fridge was stunning. It was beautiful. What was run, once this, this rusted out, beaten up, abandoned piece of furniture had been returned to its former unimpaired condition. In fact, it was even more glorious than the original. The Bible says that this is what's coming for heaven and earth. This is what's coming for God's creatures, for God's people. At the closing of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and in the first chapter of the book of Acts, we see the resurrected Jesus having accomplished all that he purposed to accomplish while he was here at that time. We see the resurrected Jesus ascending through the clouds back to his throne in heaven. But before he does, he promises his disciples what? That he will surely return to restore all things. And the biblical story then transitions, beginning in Acts 2, transitions from Act 3 of redemption into Act 4, restoration. Acts chapter 2, all the way through the book of Revelation, covers this, this scene of restoration. If we're not careful, we can read the book of Acts and the epistles we can read those as, as events that happened in the past, kind of right after the redemption of Christ. And if we're not careful, we can read the book of Revelation as something that is just uh, almost abstract, so future-oriented that we're, that we're disconnected from it. But I, I, 
I, I want us to see today, I pray that we see today that the restoration of all things is not an abstract, exclusively future-oriented event that holds little relevance for us today. It's the opposite of that. And so what I would love for us to take away today as we're about to dive into this passage of Hebrews 10, which seems like a really odd, strange passage to land on when talking about restoration but as we do, I trust, as we dive in, I trust and pray that we will see that as Christians, we can anticipate Jesus' future restoration by participating in Jesus' present restoration here and now that will get us to that point when he returns. And so, let's read. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. I'd like to start, again, it's, it seems at a, at a bit of a random spot. I'd like to start at verse 11 and read through verse 25. The author of Hebrews for the, verse, for the chapter 9 and 10 has really been making this argument that the old sacrificial system where the Israelites would bring in the lamb, the day of atonement once a year, and they would sacrifice that, that, that Jesus is the great and final fulfillment of that sacrificial system. And so let's start reading in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me?
Father, we believe that these are your words. And we believe that we are opening them and we have come to this passage this morning for such a time as this that by your appointment we would see and savor more of you, that we would know you more, and that we would be transformed into the glorious likeness of Jesus more so today than ever before we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verses 11 and 12 of our text really serve as an overview of sorts for Acts 1, or excuse me, Acts 2 and 3 of the biblical story, right? After humanity was separated from God by the fall, God mercifully established a system in the days of the Old Testament by which sinful humans could be spiritually reunited with him. It was a sacrificial system whereby a priest would stand at the temple altar every day making sacrifices to cover the sins of God's people. But when Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, was sacrificed on the cross, he eliminated the need for any more sacrifices. Because he was the perfect lamb of God, sent of God himself, his sacrifice was sufficient to take away sin forever. Glory. The Old Testament priests stood day after day, offering the blood of animals that could never fully atone for sin. But Jesus, the new and better high priest, offered his own blood just once. Just once, and by that single offering, verse 14, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What an amazing verse. And what this doesn't mean is that you and I, the believers now, are already sinless. That's not what that means. It means that Christ has fully earned our perfection on the cross, and this total perfection he will most certainly bestow to us upon his return. There are actually three facets of restoration that we see in this text that we can anticipate on the day of Christ's return. If you're a note taker, here are the three facets of restoration that we're going to look at for the remainder of our time. Number one, God's creation will be renewed. Number two, God's enemies will be removed. And number three, God's people will be made perfect in his presence. Let's look at number one. God's creation will be renewed. For many of us, this is exactly what we think of when we think of restoration, right? In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul expresses God's promise that creation will be set free from the effects of the fall. Creation will be restored. It will be renewed. The Apostle Peter reiterates this promise in 2 Peter 3. God will restore creation. The Apostle John details this restoration in Revelation 21 when all things will be made new. All creation will be restored. If you haven't picked up on the trend yet, 
the apostles clearly believed and taught this wonderful promise that God's creation would be renewed. So in our passage, when the author of Hebrews, who was likely a recipient of the apostles' teaching, when the author of Hebrews, Hebrews writes in verse 23 that Christians should hold fast to their confession of hope because he who promised these things is faithful, we can and we certainly must understand that the renewal of God's creation is included in that promise to which we should hold fast. We must hold fast to it. God promised it. He will surely do it. Similar to the Coca-Cola fridge. Our world will undergo a restorative overhaul. The rust and corrosion caused by sin will be sanded off. Think of it. Harmful bacteria, parasites, airborne illness, cancer, birth defects, hurricanes... These things will be buffed out of creation, wiped away. Like the Coca-Cola fridge, creation will get a fresh coat of paint. Not to go too artsy-fartsy on you, but like imagine how blue the sky will be. When the fog of pollution is cleared away, how clear the air will be without allergens and impurities. Imagine how soft the grass will be without weeds and thorns and thistles. Imagine the taste of fruit, for goodness sakes, that has been grown from the purest of soil. I mean, we have no idea how good an apple should probably be. Hold fast to this hope. It's included in God's promise that he will renew creation. Restoration is coming. And with this in mind, as the people of God, it is entirely appropriate to ask ourselves right now, how might we presently participate in the future renewal of creation that we anticipate? Right? After all, a, a good house sitter doesn't anticipate the return of the owner by simply neglecting the house. Wouldn't be a good, good house sitter. Wouldn't get hired on again. So as we ask ourselves, well, what's our role? How do we apply this, this idea that, that there is a future restoration of creation that we are to anticipate? How do we apply it? It seems that our culture loves to go into two extremes, right? We could become these tree-hugging idolaters who worship and serve creation like it's some sort of god. Or on the other spectrum, the other side, we could become these nature-abusing consumers who, who worship cheap and fast and disposable industry at the expense of creation. I'm going to one of these extreme sides. As Christians, we're called to exist in the middle. We're not called to, to worship creation, but we're called to steward it. I mean... When you're out on your walk, picking up trash actually participates 
in what we anticipate. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to renew this place. Why on earth, as his people, would we not agree with that in excited anticipation? Seems like it's a silly thing. I mean, only time I could ever really bring up recycling in a sermon. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Stewardship involves doing good with that which we've been entrusted. After the fall, it's not like we still haven't been entrusted with the earth. When we do, when we practice stewardship, in a way, we participate in the very restoration that we anticipate in God's creation being renewed. Number two, the other facet of God's restoration that we will witness on the day of his return is that God's enemies will be removed, vanquished, eradicated. Insert any other word that you deem necessary, gone. Evil and wickedness, gone. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, look at verse 13, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Back in Genesis 3.15, God foretold that a serpent and the serpent's followers would bruise the heel of the promised Redeemer. This bruising of the heel came to fruition when Jesus' heels were nailed to a cross. They were a bit more than bruised. But God also foretold that Jesus would bruise the head of the serpent, that the devil and all of his wicked followers would be trampled underfoot like a footstool. This victory of Christ was revealed when he rose from the dead after, after making his offering on the cross, but this victory will be finally realized when Jesus returns on the last day. Jude 1, 14 and 15, listen to these words. Behold, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds. And of all the defiant words that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones. Angel armies. Revelation 21.8, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who will by no means clear the guilty? Aren't you glad that we serve a God who will punish wickedness to the uttermost? He will punish evil. Aren't you glad, as am I, that injustice and sin and death will be, with great finality, purged from the renewed creation? 
If you're not glad, maybe we ought to ask the countless martyrs who heads have been removed on account of the gospel. Or maybe we should ask the last few remaining survivors of the Holocaust. It would seem that the more one suffers at the hands of wicked men, the more one salivates for the just return of Christ. And praise God for the mysterious beauty of our union with Jesus such that the enemies of God's people are actually the enemies of God himself. And he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Now to those of us in this room who have suffered abuse and violence and neglect and manipulation and torment and slander, What a life-changing relief to read in Scripture that at the restoration of all things, those wicked men and women will be tried before the great white throne of glory and they will be held accountable. For some surviving Jews, that is the only comfort that they have been able to hold on to since the Holocaust. And the way that we anticipate this future vengeance is not by taking vengeance into our own hands. It's something even more radical, Romans 12, 19 through 20, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what do we do? Withhold all of our food from him. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, we're talking about your enemy. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Praise Jesus that Jesus lived by this code when he came to earth. Because you and I and every one of us were at one point in time Jesus' enemies. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us while we were yet sinners. We looked at this last week. While we were still sinners, running headlong in our rebellion, willfully and woefully sold to the slavery of our own pleasure. While we were still sinners, he died for us to reconcile us to the Father. The second facet of restoration that we anticipate on on the day of Christ's return is that God's enemies will be removed. We can hold on to the comfort of that future promise if we have faced abuse, especially at the hands of someone who is still unrepentant. 
And in the meantime, as far as we are able, we are to sow peace, to pray for our enemies, to love them as much as is safe and healthy in that distance. Some, some situations with abusers, we ought not be around them. God's enemies will be removed. The third facet of restoration that we anticipate on the day of Christ's return, the third and final facet here that we see in Hebrews 10 is that God's people will be made perfect in his presence. We already touched on the first half of verse 14, how on the cross Christ has decisively earned the total perfection of his people. We've touched how you know, Christ at, at his second coming, he'll bestow this total perfection to us. We'll be ushered into a state of sinless union with him where we will be forever freed from the sinful thoughts and words and deeds that have plagued us. Hallelujah. But the second half of verse 14 reveals to us that our being perfected is a process. The writer even uses an active present participle. Listen to how seemingly paradoxical this is. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's done it and it's being done. Sanctification is the process of God's grace by which God's people become more like Jesus. I'll say that again in case you're not familiar with church language. Sanctification is the process of God's grace by which God's people become more like Jesus. And for true Christians in this room, your sanctification is not an option. You don't get to choose whether or not you're going to be more like Jesus. Looking less and less like the world and more and more like Jesus is not an option because those whom God justifies, he also glorifies. He will do it. He will transform you, brother, sister. He will transform you into the likeness of his son. He will perfect you from the inside out by writing his laws on your hearts and your minds, verses 15 and 16, by his Holy Spirit. And because Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's a sense in every moment of every day through our various trials and circumstances, there is a sense that we could say sanctification is this. It's us becoming who we already are in Christ. That was the Augustinian way of, of looking at it, and we thank him for making us even more confused. In a way, looking at verse 14 here in our passage, we could say that this, the idea of sanctification is becoming who we already are in Jesus. What an amazing mystery to go home and meditate on the rest of the day, which I'm sure you will. And I know that you and I can attest to this, brothers and sisters, 
we can attest, we can validate the truth of becoming who we already are in Christ. Just, I want to do some celebration for a second. Just think with me. Look back at your life over the last five years. Okay, and if you're four years old, sorry. <laughs> Look back at the last four years. If you're even a little more patient than you were five years ago, if you are even a little more gentle and sacrificial, if you're even just a little more hospitable, not to the people who are easy to have over, I'm talking about the kids who run all over your sofa with their shoes on, those kids. If you're even a little more hospitable, if you're a little more aware of your sin than you, are, than you were five years ago, if you're a little more hungry for righteousness, praise God. The Holy Spirit is writing his laws on your heart and your mind. He is perfecting you as slow as it may seem from the inside out. Now look, nobody can see a plant growing. We would be silly to stare at a plant and think that we're going to catch its growth. No, 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 no. We only ever see the plant's growth past tense. We look and we remember what it looked like two years ago. And we see what has taken place and we glorify the Lord. I had the privilege of doing this with a brother over coffee this week. Just talking about what the last year in our lives has produced. Just the way that we have seen God at work. Maybe before the year's end, it would be a healthy discipline for all of us to just get a piece of paper out or a journal and just write down what it is that we have seen God doing in our lives. The evidences of grace that we, we look a little bit more like Jesus coming into 2019 than we did coming into 2018. And then praise God for these things. Praise God for these growths. And what an unspeakable comfort we see in verses 17 and 18. What an unspeakable comfort these verses add to the idea of this spirit-empowered sanctification. Namely this, we don't have to look back over the last five years of our lives and hope and pray that we've been sanctified enough to earn our stay in God's family. No, 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 no. Because of Jesus, because of redemption, God has forgotten your sins. He has removed your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. The Holy Spirit sanctifies you and I, not because we are auditioning for God's approval, but because we already have it. And now... By way of sanctifying us, he is just preparing us for glory. He's coming back for a bride that he recognizes. Which is why verses 19 through 22 should encourage us to hold our heads high when we walk into this place Sunday after Sunday. Brothers and sisters, if you are covered in the blood of Jesus by simply trusting 
that his blood was enough to atone for your sin and to present you blameless before the Father, if you are a brother or sister in Christ, you do not ever enter this sanctuary in defeat. Ever. I don't care what your week has looked like, you walk in with confidence that is founded on the blood of Jesus. No longer is there a curtain like there was in the temple behind which only the, only the priest who had been purified could go because the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, has washed all of his people. All of his people can enter into his holy presence with full assurance. We don't do an assurance of grace passage in our bulletin every single week just for the fun of reading awkwardly together. We do it to remind us, for us who are in Christ, you can be assured you're in, you're saved, you're not going anywhere. He's not going to let you go. So chill and worship. If you trust Jesus for your access to God, you can be assured that you have it. Jesus has earned your welcome in the presence of God. That's just a head wrecker right there, isn't it? Our passage comes to a close, and I'm coming to a close now with verses 24 and 25. I wish I could have preached an entire sermon on this, these two verses. Verses 24 and 25 offer us three ways that we can presently participate in the future reality of our perfection in Christ. I'll say that again. These two verses offer us three ways that we can presently participate in the future reality of our perfection in Christ. It's how we can anticipate the perfection that awaits us and we can participate with one another in the process of our sanctification now. Number one, look at the first half of verse 25. Don't neglect to meet. It's the habit of some... Yeah, but don't neglect to meet together. I don't care how many traveling baseball teams your kid plays on. If we, if we understand what God is saying to us in this passage, if we only understood the urgency of being together, that God has literally ordained individuals to sit next to you week in, week out here and in community group and as we do life throughout the week. He's ordained it to bring out more of Jesus in you. If we only knew the joy of pressing into the difficulty of being around difficult people such as yourselves all the time, if we only knew the joy that awaits we wouldn't even let our kid play that much baseball. Because there would be so much, something so much greater than Timmy learning how to throw a curveball that would be in here week after week after week. 
There are a zillion reasons why we neglect to meet together. I mean, the wind shifts, and some of us are out for a month, for goodness sake. I'm not trying to rail on anybody. Our Christian walk is personal, yes, but it is not private. Don't neglect to meet together. If you've committed here, come. If you've committed to a CG, go. Be a part. Trust that God is doing something in that space that he would not be doing in you in any other space. He uniquely has you here for such a time as this. Number two, what we see. We see the writer telling us to encourage one another in the second half of verse 25. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and do so all the more as you see the day of restoration drawing near. That capital D day is coming. Encourage one another Sometimes I just need some of you to remind me that I'm saved. Have you ever had one of those weeks? Amen. I'm questioning everything. Does Jesus love me? Does Jesus exist? Is any of this true? Do you not have those weeks? Encourage one another. If you're around each other, brushing shoulders with each other here and at CG, we're going to know, brother, are you struggling? Lift him up. Lift her up. Are you armed with specific scripture verses that you know will edify your brothers and sisters? Ready to quote them to them, to remind them that they are secure in Jesus. They needn't be afraid. He says, let us consider how we might stir up one another. Text each other when you think of each other. Call each other. I don't, know, I don't even know if anybody does that anymore. Get out the rotary. (laughs) Number three, stir one another to love and good works. Do you see growth in me from this year? Tell me. If I see growth in you, I promise you, I will tell you. Stir each other up to love and to good deeds Plato once said, and I'm going to steal it from him right now, we end up cultivating that which we celebrate. We cultivate what we celebrate. And so in our children, in each other, if we see things that are worthy of praise, celebrate the life out of them. Say, dude, I have seen you step up as a man of God to lead your wife this year. Praise God. And as we celebrate, more of that will be cultivated in the heart. All of this, of course, our aim is that in some Holy Spirit-enabled way, we would participate in what we anticipate, which is the beautiful restoration of that Coca-Cola fridge that we call the heavens and the earth and God's creatures and his people. Amen? Let's pray. I'm actually going to pray from Jude 24 and 25. God, to you, to you alone who are able 
to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before your very presence in great joy and great glory. To our only God, our only Savior, through Jesus Christ, God, to you, Father, Son, Spirit, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. We love you. Seal these truths into our heart, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.